after a drug-infused, crazy Sunday night, um, I woke up Monday afternoon, you would call it, and my wife and my dad were in my hotel room. They had found me, and I was, I was in a really bad place, obviously. And he's just like, do you want to live? That's what he asked me. And I was just kind of like, I don't know. I mean, I guess so. They, they got me out of there. They got me back to Dallas. They got me in to see a clinician. And for the, I spent two hours with this clinician for the first time in my life was honest. That was Stephen, founder and managing partner of What If Ventures and the host of the Stigma podcast. There you heard Stephen talking about when he was found in his Vegas hotel room by his wife and his father the day after he planned to end it all. Stephen has type 1 bipolar and is a recovering addict. There was a trail of destruction leading to Stephen's hotel room, including getting thrown out of his country club, paying gambling debts by cashing in pensions, and being unfaithful to his wife. Other things we cover in this episode include the role of religion and 12-step programs in Stephen's recovery, and the sorts of people he had to meet to be willing to go there. We discussed the representation of bipolar in the media, specifically the character Ben from season three of Ozark. And finally, Stephen explained why he started the What If Ventures investment fund and how being completely candid has had unexpected outcomes. Running a podcast, even a small one, incurs costs. So it's with tremendous excitement to tell you that this episode has its first paid sponsor, RMI. Uh, Remote Medical International helps clients manage and improve the health and well-being of their global workforce by creating an ecosystem of medical screenings, on-site medical staff, and injury management. We improve the quality of on-site medical care while reducing costs. Cool company. Really appreciate uh, the sponsorship of this episode. And moving on, remember that Stephen and I are just two people talking about our personal experiences with addiction alcoholism, bipolar. And if something we say makes you go, ah, there's the solution to my problems, do make sure to consult with your care team first. My name is James Pratt. I'm the host of Silent Superheroes, and I'm really glad that you're here. Welcome to the Silent Superheroes podcast, a series of frank conversations about mental health at work. So welcome to Silent Superheroes. I'm here with today's guest, Stephen. Stephen, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So it seems pertinent that we start with an introduction. So why don't you tell us who are you and what do you do? Uh, my name's Stephen Hayes. I run a little venture fund called What If Ventures. We invest in mental health and addiction-related startups. I'm also the host of a podcast called The Stigma Podcast, where we interview founders that are building mental health startups, clinicians, investors, uh, really anybody who's lived with mental illness or lived with addiction. And we have folks come on and tell, tell their stories. Uh, and that, that's what I'm up to these days. And of course, it's not an accident that you started a fund specifically focusing on mental health and hosting a podcast focusing on mental health. So what makes mental health personal to you? Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I struggled with addiction for the better part of two decades uh, after college. Uh, and, you know, I was able to do a lot of things. I was able to have a lot of success financially, professionally, while living in that addiction. I also was living with bipolar disorder during that time. 
but eventually the, the bipolar disorder and the addiction all came to a head and I, I found myself in rehab in 2018. Somebody listening who doesn't maybe understand what bipolar is or somebody who wants to hear a, a, you know, a new perspective on it, what is what is bipolar? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not a doctor, but the way I describe it to my friends who don't understand, it's a mood disorder. I have mood swings. You know, I have these periods of time where I'm fine. I have periods of time where I'm in a, a deep depressive state, and and it seems like there's nothing I can do about it. And then I have times where I'm in these manic uh, or elevated states that I also seem to not be able to do anything about. Those, those depressive states lead me to places that that um, that are depressing, that are sad, that are low. That oftentimes will lead me to cope with substances or or with alcohol. And the manic states too. I mean, man, I, I think a lot of my addiction issues came from trying to silence the mania when it couldn't be used productively. And it could at times it can be used productively. You'll find a lot of people with bipolar disorder are highly functional, very successful people that do highly destructive things to themselves. I think as one person with a mental illness to another, I want to ask, uh, where are you right now on your spectrum? feel pretty good right now. I mean, when I went to rehab, I was prescribed lithium. I take lithium every day. Um, I've also been wanting to get in shape. And I learned that the ketogenic diet is something that's helpful for people with a mood disorder to regulate the nervous system and to regulate, you know, that change in energy source helps regulate mood as well. Uh, moving from carbs and sugar into using fat as an energy source. So I feel pretty good. I mean, I still have highs and lows. I mean, I still can find myself. It, it, it's funny because I second guess myself a lot. A lot of times I have what you think might be a normal reaction to something. But because I take medication, because I'm aware of what's going on, I often go, wait a second. Am I being paranoid? Am I overreacting? Is this, am, I, am I reacting normal? Um, so I'd say I'm doing pretty well. I still have times where I struggle on both the high and the low end of my, of my mood. Um, but I have a really great support network around me of people who understand what I live with and what I go through. And I use them as barometers for how I'm doing as well. So I, you know, if I'm, you know, I have people in my life that'll ask me, Hey man, how are you like up to date on your medication? Have you done this? Are you doing that? Uh, and, and so you know, I have guardrails in place around my life to, to help me not go too far left or right. But yeah, I mean, I still have, I can tell I still have depression. I still have uh, elevated mood states, but the swings are less often and they're far less severe uh, with the help of medication and a bunch of other things like diet, exercise, and mindfulness. It's about finding the balance. I always think of it like uh, walking down a tightrope. You know, if, if you're a tightrope walker and you have no pole, you're kind of all over the place and likely to fall off, especially if you're not used to walking down the tightrope. And then, you know, you kind of get a longer and longer pole and that makes it easier and easier to balance. And I always think of like the medication, the exercise, like those things are my pole. Those are things that keep me, you know, stable. But to your point, it's still possible that I can, that I can fall off. So we were chatting before, uh, there's a TV show uh, on Netflix that uh, I guess we both enjoy called Ozark. In the third season, they introduced a character with sort of bipolar. They introduced him. He was kind of hanging around with the other characters for a while. And then one of the characters kind of is sat by a bar with somebody else and was like, oh, you know, he's, he's bipolar and he's off his medication and stuff like that. How do you think about 
the way that that character is called Ben, I think. How do you think about the way that he was introduced and then how that character played out? He was introduced as this outgoing, gregarious, fun, good-looking guy. Yeah. And it's funny because when you're in a positive or elevated mood state, it's just so easy to come off that way, even though you're a little bit unsettled under the surface or, or very unsettled under the surface. And so you never knew that he had any kind of issue until looking back, right? Because like looking back, you can see how his sister and others reacted to him. And they, as they start to build this character, they, they, they make reference to, well, in the past, you know, oh, but he's different now or he's changed. And then when things go sideways in his life, everything unravels for him. He's, he's attacking people. He's screaming at people. He's, you know, threatening people. And I mean, I, I did that. I, I really related to that. There were some moments in there where he displayed anger that I was looking at the screen going, dude, I, I have been there. I, that looks like me. You know, the thing that was, that really stood out to me was the level of paranoia he had when he was on the run with his sister and he picks up the, he keeps trying to get access to a cell phone to call the people that want to kill him to try to talk to them and apologize and make it right. Even though he knows they're going to kill him if they find him, that level of paranoia, nothing I have seen on TV has resonated with what I've experienced with my own uh, paranoia and what I've been through during times of stress like that. That was the best portrayal of what it feels like to deal with a manic episode of anything I've seen on TV, because I think a lot of people portray, you know, like in shameless, they'll portray the manic episode as this really awesome, high, happy go lucky. Like I wish I could be manic all the time kind of vibe, but it's really not a manic episode can be filled with just hyperactive thought and extreme productivity, but paranoia and, and doing all these irrational things that seem perfectly rational at the time. And they, I think Ozark, nailed it portraying what to what my bipolar looks like in its worst moments with that that character it's easy sometimes to portray mental illnesses in a very lazy way and i was reflecting on kind of the actor and the transition that he makes as you say from that very happy-go-lucky and then you start to see his face is a little bit more frowny and a little bit more intense. And it's like you can watch the the slide that he's going through in his internal mental state. I thought was very well done from that, from that. When he realizes he's being committed, the reaction. And then once he lets that reaction out, that angry, just screaming, don't do this to me. Once he gets committed, his ability to turn that around and charm his way out to get back to doing what he wanted to do. That resonated with me so much because of the ways that I, over the years, was able to to lie and manipulate to get back to using or drinking or gambling or sex or whatever it was, whatever addiction it was that I was going to, to cope with these feelings I had. My ability to manipulate my way to having access to those things was extraordinary. To the point where when I went to rehab, I wrote down a handful of questions that I wanted answered about myself. And the number one question on my list was, why do I lie so much to not just others, but to myself all the time? I mean, I often 
relate to that character and catcher in the rye, Holden Caulfield, who would talk about why he would just lie for no reason. Color of the sky, what time of day it was. He just could not tell the truth at times. And I felt that way. And I later found out that it's that's not just the bipolar. I mean, that's the addiction. That's the thing in my brain, the addiction, the disease that didn't want to die, that wouldn't let me tell the truth. And when you have a comorbidity of, of addiction with a bipolar, especially a type one bipolar, I mean, that the way those work together, it's really hard to explain it. It's really hard to portray it in a TV show, but they, they did a pretty good job uh, I think in Ozark of, of, of portraying the complexity of what's going on between these these things that exist together between the mental illness and the addiction. And those two, that comorbidity appears to be very common, right? Where you have somebody with bipolar and with um, addiction. Right? Yeah, I think it's very common, and I can't speak to other. I know there are people that that don't have addiction issues that are type one bipolar or bipolar type two or whatever version they are. Um, but for me, the addiction was. I think rooted in trauma. I think most addiction is, or almost probably all addiction of some sort. Um, there's a dopamine deficiency. There's a way that I had not processed trauma in my life. And then my ability to feel good when, when things were bad, you know, none of that, that system didn't work well in my body. And so that led me to, you know, these coping mechanisms. And one of the things that led me to have to cope was these extreme feelings of depression that didn't make sense and these extreme moments of mania where I may have been really productive because I was amped up and I could go days without sleeping. I may have been very successful because of that. Um, but I also ruined relationships. I ruined businesses. I ruined so many things in my life. And that destruction, that I, the self-destruction, made me need to cope with that pain and over the years, I learned to cope with that with drugs, with alcohol, with women, with gambling. Um, and I just could not handle the way I felt. If you look back, you know, across your journey, when do you think that bipolar started showing up in your life? Because it's not something that's there from childhood, typically. Throughout my life, I really struggled with relationships. I had a professor in college just say this to me, like in front of a classroom because I was so such a pain in the ass. He said, you're a sugar high. Everybody loves you at first, but it doesn't take very long for the sugar high to wear off. And then everybody, nobody can stand you. That was the first moment in my life where I was like, actually, you know what? That's pretty true. Like I've experienced that my whole life as far as back as I can remember. So when was the how far back can I remember being that way? Childhood, middle school, high school. Um, but the, the, the mood swings and that behavior didn't become prohibitive, destructive force in my life for quite some time. I mean, for at least a decade or so after that. Um, the first time I wondered if I was bipolar, I, my wife and I had joined a country club. And I got thrown out of the country club and I got thrown out for alcohol and drug use and uh, being an asshole. Um, every time something bad happened to me, I'd get very paranoid and I would, I would think that people were plotting against me. And so I was like, at one point I like turned the regular Thursday night poker game into like the local authorities. Cause I thought that's the right thing to do that. That's how to handle what's going on here in my life. And 
that level of paranoia in my reactions, it looked a lot like what was going on in Ozark. It got me thrown out of that place. I got thrown out of another one just like it for doing similar things. I went through this period of my life where my social problems were so bad that I actually sought help. And I, I had read enough online, this is probably 2014, 2013, 14, to know that this might be a mood disorder. There might be something more here. And I actually went to a therapist. I went to a, a counseling center, told them all of this. And the counselor looked at me and said, yeah, you might have like ADHD or something. And I just remember thinking to myself, that's what they told me when I was seven. Something more is wrong here, but nobody seems to understand it. And that made it worse for me. I think you use this word to describe yourself, but I'm going to use it as well, which is it sounds like you were a real asshole for, for a period of time there. I would describe myself as the worst person I've ever met for the better part of my adult life. If I told you all of the things I had done during manic episodes, there you would, I mean, you would lose your mind. I mean, you would, oh, it's disgusting, some of the things that I've done. There are people listening, you post the questions, if I told you some of the things that I'd done, like, you would be horrified. And there are people thinking kind of, I want to know, like, what horrifying is. So, like, pick, pick an example, something you're Yeah, share. I mean, it's, it's, it's sex addiction, prostitutes, strip clubs, drugs, lying and manipulating, being unfaithful to my wife, to my family, just being deceitful, I mean, seeking personal gain over all other things so that I could fuel these addictions. I mean, I, cashing out 401ks to pay gambling debts. I mean, just the, the, the incessant things. I mean, I, I forced myself and I had to go through bankruptcy because of the debts I put myself into because of my addictions. Don't get me wrong. I chose to do these things. It's not woe is me. I couldn't control going to sleep with the prostitute. I could control that. I chose to do that. The consequences of doing that are mine to bear, but they still suck. I, I had all these benefits. I had all, I mean, grew up in a nice neighborhood and with an a, you know, upper middle class family and went to West Point and I had an MBA from Vanderbilt. I mean, I, handed to me on a silver platter was an incredible life with all the opportunity in the world. Um, I, I did very little to earn that and I just shit it down the drain. So it sounds like you got out of it. Um, you know, you changed you know, who you are. You present as a different person today than I imagine, you know, I would have had on this podcast 10 years ago or something like that. Not that you would have been here, but like in this in a weird hypothetical way. So what was the moment you alluded to, to a moment earlier on where it felt like things started to change? Things got worse and worse. Um, you know, I, I had this manic episode in 2018. I wrecked my house. Um, it, it turned into a huge mess and uh, police got involved. Um, and, you know, in that situation, the, the police accused me of some things that I actually didn't do. But what I did do was awful. I mean, I just destroyed my house. And that situation felt like it had ruined my life. And I, my reaction to that was I was going to go to Las Vegas and, you know, gamble 
see prostitutes, party, have a great time, and then kill myself. That was my plan. And that was August of 2018. And, you know, I, I booked a hotel room at the – I usually stay at the Wynn, but I booked a room at the Cosmo as a backup because they had balconies. I was going to jump off the 61st floor there. I didn't summon up the courage to do it. I didn't, I didn't pull the trigger, if you want to say that. And then I woke up on a, after a drug-infused, crazy Sunday night. Um, I woke up middle of the afternoon that next that Monday morning, Monday afternoon, you would call it. And my wife and my dad were in my hotel room. And they had found me, and I was, I was in a really bad place, obviously. And they, my dad was just kind of like, who's like just 80, 81 year old dad, like Southern Baptist, conservative, just like good hearted, genuine, great, great, never done, probably never consumed any kind of substance in his life. And he's just like, do you want to live? That's what he asked me. And I was just kind of like, I don't know. I mean, I guess so. And so long story short, they, they got me out of there. They got me back to Dallas and uh, they, they got me in to see a uh, clinician. And for the, I spent two hours with this clinician for the first time in my life was honest with someone who understood. And they recommended that I, I go to rehab. Yeah. So I ended up going to the Meadows. Uh, it's a rehab center out in Arizona. Uh, place saved my life. My attitude when I got there was a little bit of reluctance. You know, I had never been to a 12-step meeting. I had never, I didn't consider myself to have an alcohol problem or a drug problem. I considered myself that my life to be out of control. I had, I didn't know what was wrong with me, but I needed help. And at that point, I needed to be off the radar. I needed people to leave me alone. I needed to just go disengage from life and try to figure out what was going on. And so I went out there and you know, my first night there, they, they, they say, you got to go to one of the 12 step meetings. And that's, I was like, okay, whatever, I'll go. And at this point I'm pretty far from my faith. I hadn't gone to church in decades and I grew up in a faith-based community, but I, I long since removed myself from that. And so I walk into this room for an AA meeting and up on the wall are these 12 steps. And in seven of these 12 steps, it mentions God or higher power. And at this point I'm losing it because I'm like, Dude, I told them non-religious, do not send me to one of these religious treatment centers. Like, I'm not doing that. And I get in this room and I'm thinking to myself, this is bullshit, dude. Like I don't belong here. This, I'm just going to suck it up and do my couple months, but pff, this is dumb. And so people started sharing. Okay. So, so we're sitting in a big circle and, 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 and one person shares and then another person shares. And, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm not an alcoholic. Like I don't really like this is still thinking, I said, this is stupid. 16 people shared and then it got to me. And dude, I'm sitting there listening to these stories and I'm like, these people are calling themselves alcoholics. They are telling stories of what happened to them and their stories are not that bad. I mean, like really, I'm thinking to myself, like you guys shouldn't even be here. Like you guys are fine. Like you guys have done nothing. I'm not an alcoholic. Neither are you. You're fine. So by the time it gets to me, I lost my shit. I started crying. I couldn't speak. And I was like, well, fuck it. I guess I'm an alcoholic. I mean, and I just said, I mean, you people's stories are not that bad. And what I've done, I qualify. I must be. What those people said resonated with me in a way that no therapist could have done it. No, nobody from a church could have done it. Hearing their stories made me go, holy shit, I've got the same thing. 
And that was a huge turning point for me where I went from defensive. I shouldn't be here to like my fist is clenched to, okay, well, you know what? Maybe, maybe I'm in the right place. What did you sort of learn, figure out around the whole God thing in the end? And it took a long time. Um, I left rehab. I still wasn't there on higher power. So I left rehab. I had almost about two months of sobriety under my belt and I had a plan. I was going to, I had a psychiatrist lined up. I had a therapist lined up. I had my AA home group lined up. I was, I was, you know, got off the plane when I got home on, on, on a Saturday night. I went straight to an AA meeting, got plugged in with a local AA group, picked up a sponsor. I went to like two AA meetings and I just couldn't do it. I, I mean, I, I, they were telling me higher power and I was like, dude, I haven't figured that out. So I went home from about my second or third AA meeting. Uh, I'd been to my sponsor's house. We had had a long conversation about what addiction is and isn't. And I guess I qualified. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Not something you want to qualify for really, but you know. Yeah, I guess I qualified. And dude, I, after that meeting with that sponsor at his house, I did not leave my house for almost three months, two two to three months. Um, I started playing video games all night. Um, which is another was an, an addiction of mine that I could engage in. Nobody would, you know, say anything about. It was just eat, ordering pizzas and eating junk food and gaining weight, sleeping all day. After about two or three months of that, um, I would leave. I did leave the house once a week to go to see a therapist. And you know, after about, I was on the way to see my therapist one day, and I got a phone call. And this guy, Bob, Bob calls me and he says, "I want to meet with you." And I'm thinking to myself, he wants to kill me. I owe him money. It's a bookie from the past. And I, who, who knows? This guy's like, no, 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 dude. I want to meet with you. I want to have a coffee and just talk to you. Like, I, um, <clears throat> my story is pretty gnarly. I want to tell it to you. I said, okay. So I go meet this guy, older guy, um, and he tells me a story. And he had started this restaurant called Bob Steak and Chop House. He had started it in Dallas, chains all, all over the country now. Um, but he started it. He had an addiction issue. He ended up, you know, doing some, some fraudulent stuff and got some criminal issue with it and lost his business, lost his wife, didn't have contact with addiction, ruined his life. And his story was so intense that I, I remember sitting there and this is something you pick up in, in, in recovery is you, you kind of, you hear someone's story and you're like, okay, I'm going to take this guy seriously because his story sounds as bad or worse than mine. And his story was so bad. Uh, and I was just like, okay, I, re- I have some respect for you because you've b- been through some stuff that sounds a- pretty intense. And he said, listen, man, I want you to come to a Bible study with me. And I said, oh, hold on, dude. No, that, no, no, no. Everything was cool until now. Not going to happen. And he said, no, dude. He said, it's a room full of former criminals addicts, everybody's turned their life around. These, these are guys that are very well off that have come from where, where you came from. So I go to this, I go to this Bible study on a Wednesday afternoon, uh, Wednesday noontime, and I meet all these guys and man, it really clicked. Like what they were saying, what they'd been through, it made, it made me, it, 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 it tore down all of these images that I had. Cause I thought, if I'm going to get back into faith, I'm going to have to go to church. I'm going to walk into a church and I'm going to be looked at like, I mean, no, nobody wants me in their church. And these guys were really receptive and it just changed how I viewed that stigma 
of what the church was going to, how they were going to view me, how faith was going to view me, how that, how I was going to fit into that community. Started going to church. Uh, they built, they had started a recovery program at the church that I grew up going to. I got plugged in there, started going to the Bible study. Then I, once I started becoming okay with this concept of higher power, I'm not saying I was totally cool with it, but I was not repulsed by it. I started going back to AA. I got really into 12 steps. I mean, I mean, I was going to Sex Addicts Anonymous. I was going to AA, Gamblers Anonymous. I was going to two, three meetings a day. I mean, look, I'm, I like didn't have a job. I couldn't, couldn't have gotten a job. So I mean, I, I went to meetings. That's what I did for a few months, man. All I did was go to meetings. Like 90 and 90 was, I probably did 180 and 90. And if you're somebody listening who hasn't been involved in recovery, 90 and 90 basically means in your first 90 days in the program, they recommend you go to a meeting every day. Yeah. And I was going to, once I got into it, I was going twice a day, three times a day, different 12 step groups. I mean, I was something clicked once I got okay with this idea that I could set my ego aside and admit that there is something out there bigger than me and that I can't control everything. And that if I can surrender to that idea, then I can let go of my biggest problem, which was my ego. It turns out your ego was broken down by going to places where you weren't the worst drunk. And you were like, oh, there's like tons of drunks around like me. I guess I can't be that special. The best was sitting in one of these rooms and having a, a guy walk in and say, yeah, you know, I got my like 12th DUI and I'm waiting for sentencing. I've already pled guilty. I'm probably going to do five, six years. I've got all this shit going on in my life. But hey, you know what? I've actually finally found some peace because I don't need to drink anymore. I just remember thinking like, damn, okay. I don't know how that guy is okay with that, but I need to get there. I need to get to the point where no matter what happens to me, I'm okay. And I really, hearing other people's stories is what made me go, all right, you know what? I might find a way to be okay. Sounds like your recovery programs have been life-changing, maybe even life-saving for you. To say the least, (laughs) yeah. There's another part of this story, which we already talked about, which is the bipolar. So I'm curious, how did you come to that diagnosis? Where did that happen in this process? I got diagnosed by a psychiatrist in rehab. So, you know, I sat down um, with my psychiatrist, it was like day two or three, and it was about a 45-minute first meeting, and I probably talked for, as you can imagine, I ramble. Um, So I I talked for probably 40 of the 45 minutes, and at the end, she looks at me and she goes, look, I don't diagnose flippantly. She's like, I'm not just going to diagnose you with something, but she said, I said, so what is going on? Like, help me, tell me, is there a a reason why I've done all these things and why I am this way. And she looked at me and she said, she said, you went to West Point. You were successful there. You found your way to wall street. You were successful there. She said, all the places you've gone, she said, she said, your story walks in these doors thousands of times a year. She said, I didn't even need to speak to you. She said, All I had to do is read your bio background and go, ah, okay, I need a confirmatory meeting, but I think I know what's going on with this guy. She said, you spoke a thousand miles an hour for 40 straight minutes. She said, this is actually pretty straightforward. There is an explanation for this and there's something you can do about it. And dude, the relief I felt when I realized there was a fucking reason, I was just like, 
there's there's a, there's a chance like this i'm not the only one like th there's something i can do i can take a medication i can get help for this like holy shit i'm glad i didn't jump off that building like i'm glad i why did no one ever tell me this like I remember I had all these thoughts racing through my head. I got diagnosed there that officially diagnosed probably a few weeks later, but I started taking lithium, started feeling better. And after we got the dosage right, you know, it took, it took, God, it probably took a month and a half to like play with the dosages and do blood tests and figure out, you know, what was a toxic level and what was the right level. Uh, but once we got the medication right, and then I started focusing on other parts of my life, it honestly felt like, it's just a relief to know that there was an answer. If I take the medication and I eat the right kind of diet for me and I'm taking care of myself, my, my mind, and I'm doing uh, some sort of mindfulness practice and I'm living in recovery, if I've, and I'm pursuing my faith, and if, which is important for me, if I'm doing all of these things, it all works together. And I think the medication is an important part of it, um, but I don't think it's the only thing. Uh, one thing to note on the lithium front, so you talked about getting getting blood tests for it, and that's done because lithium is one of the uh, medications in this whole mental illness medications where you can actually measure if you've got probably the right dosage, right? Because the lithium goes into your body and becomes part of your bloodstream, and then you can say, like, okay, you've got 0.7 lithium, 0.7 is typically the the right therapeutic dose, so we'll leave you there, which is much different than many SSRIs where you're just sort of playing around and trying to figure out, like, do you feel better? Do you not feel better? Uh, so I think lithium is um, very popular for that. And of course, it has side effects. You know, you get ongoing blood tests to make sure things like your thyroid aren't packing up and stuff like that, which is the downside. I'm curious, do you get any other side effects from taking lithium? Definitely felt some side effects from it here and there. You know, they've told me that I'd be more sensitive to sunlight. Like when I, if I get a lot of sun exposure in the summer, um, I haven't felt it. Um, I haven't experienced that that I know of. Um, I do need to drink a lot more water. I get very dry mouth uh, because it is a salt. It's um, it, it does absorb a lot of, of, of liquid, just like any salt or sodium would do. Um, so I do get like very dry mouth and I find myself just downing tons of water. But really, it's not that bad. I mean, a lot of people, you, you hear a lot of people talking and they make this uh, portrayal, we go, go back to TV shows, they make this portrayal that people want to get off of their meds. I mean, I really don't want to. I mean, I, I like the way I feel. I like the life I'm living. I like feeling well and not living with the, just the, the darkness that was in my head when I was trying to deal with this and didn't have any help. I, I really don't want to have to feel that way. So I, I don't think I'm one of those people that's sitting around going, man, I'd really love to go. I think I'm good now. I don't need my medication. Um, but I've also only been doing it for eight, 18, 19 months. So. Yeah. You've put in place a solid platform with your religion, with the recovery programs, with lithium, mindfulness, etc. So I'm curious, what have you built on top of that platform? I'm, I'm a venture capitalist by most recent um, 
trade or, or profession. I'm a finance guy. I've spent seven years on Wall Street. Um, so I was sitting around when I got out of rehab wondering, you know, like three questions that any entrepreneur would ask. Am I the only one with this problem? Uh, does, does it, is there anybody trying to solve it? And is anybody investing in that solution? And I found the answer to be yes to all of that. Um, and as I was working through the 12 steps and sort of getting towards the end of that process the first time through, you know, it, it, one of the things they encourage you to do is to find ways to be of service. Um, that can be sponsoring other guys. That can be leading meetings. It can be going to a local jail and talking to guys that are in there because of addiction or because of substance. And one of the things that I stumbled into was in March of 2019, I just, and I don't remember exactly why I did it, but I wrote a blog post. I just got all my thoughts down and I kind of told my story at a high level, what had happened to me. I included all these anecdotes from my life and I wrote about being bipolar and having my addiction and wanting to die and then how I got people to save my life. And, and I published this on LinkedIn and on Medium. I thought, I thought people would just d- d- delete me from the their life. You'd be like, this guy, oh my God, I knew something was wrong with this guy. Of course, I'm get, get this guy out of my life. Over the coming probably month or two after I wrote that blog post, it was every day people were emailing me saying, dude, you've encouraged me to share my story. Man, you've encouraged me to consider getting help. You've encouraged me this or that or the other. And I, it just, I was absolutely overwhelmed with the people that reached out. And I said, Maybe this is where I can help. Maybe I can encourage other people to tell their story. Maybe I can go find people with a story and help them use that to do something good or make money on a business that does something good. And so that's where two ideas came from. One, I thought, you know what? I'm going to start a podcast. I'm going to get on there and tell my story. And then I'm going to have other people come on and tell theirs. And so I did. And it's it's like a little art project and it's fun. And I like it. And some people listen to it. I think, I think we help some people. I think we're creating a library, a catalog of resources, of stories that can be there forever that people can come back to and use when, when they need them or reference when they're trying to make a point about something they're experiencing. So I, I'm proud of that. I can't really make money doing that. And so I said, well, I'll, I'll build a venture capital fund. I'll go out and raise some money. I'll invest in startups. I went out and tried to raise money and I cobbled together some verbal commitments, a few million bucks but I didn't have an anchor investor. It wasn't enough to build a fund that would pay my bills with management fee. But I did. I eventually found an anchor investor and I went to New York. I sat down with him and he says to me, he goes, look, man, he goes, I got two issues. He said, one, you've been sober for 10 months at that time. And he said, this is a 10 year commitment that I'm going to make. And I have to vouch for to my investors to put their money into your thing. I don't know. What do I, how, what do I tell them? I don't have an answer. Like, I go to a meeting every day. I hope I don't drink tonight. Um, hands in the air. Like, no answer for you there, man. Not, um, not the uh, certainty that finance yeah, no, right. looking for, right? Yeah, and then he goes, okay. He goes, that's an issue for us. And I said, yeah, I get that. And then he also wasn't sure that the market, the mental health space, there were not enough startups to invest in, which that's, I'm not worried about that feedback. I, I can, I can, I have answers for that. So, he said, look, why don't you do this? He said, start a syndicate. He said, don't charge a fee. He said, go out there in the market and show that you can get some investors to back you and that you can get some founders to take capital from you and also prove your sobriety. He said, I, he said listen, I'm not a 12-step guy. I'm not in recovery. I don't understand all that stuff. He said, for me, I need to see you stay sober for a while. And I said, okay. So 
I started this syndicate, What If Ventures, and I, I went out and I rounded up about a dozen email addresses of people who said that they would look at deals. And I went out and found a founder who was building something I liked. And they, he let me have a little piece of allocation in his round. My investors filled the allocation. And that was our first deal in January of 2020. And then shortly after that, I went to another company um, that was raising money. They had raised money from Jeff Bezos and General Catalyst. And they were like, really big name investors were in this company. And I thought, there's no way they're going to let me in. I went to the CEO and I said, listen, I really want to invest in your upcoming round. I think your logo and your brand next to me, honestly, will give me some validation. And the co-investors in this round will make me look like I'm investing with people that are that are good at this. So you'll give me, help me build my brand. I sat down in a coffee shop with him the second week of January at the JP Morgan Health Conference. He said to me, he goes, um, my co-investors are going to ask me, how do you add value to the cap table? And I looked at him and I said, dude, honestly, man, I don't add any value. I said, the ecosystem needs somebody to do what I'm doing. It needs a fund dedicated to the problems that people are facing that no one knows how to solve. And I said, I am trying to build that. And I said, I need someone to validate me. So I need to be in this deal. Like this is, how does this add value? You guys are doing something to help build the ecosystem if you, if you help me build what I'm building. Like th- this is a Silicon Valley like titan, okay? And he looks at me and he goes, dude, I've never heard a venture capitalist talk like that. He's like, you're in. <laughs> and I was like, sweet. I mean, I didn't, I didn't say that out loud, but inside I was like, holy shit. Okay. Well, now, now I got to go find the money, but this is awesome. <laughs> but you know what's so interesting about that? Through none of this did you lead with your ego. In fact, your ego got like kicked around on the journey. It's like, you know, well, you, you know, you can't be in here, you know, you know, credible, you know, the people putting the money in, you know, aren't going to want to unless you can somehow certify your sobriety through this whole journey. Like, and even, you know, the question that you were asked about what value do you add and being able to say, like, I don't know, I had any, but like, we need this, we need this fund. That feels like that's the difference. That's, it is a difference, man. I found that when you, when you lead with vulnerability and authenticity, when you lead with your weaknesses, you can accomplish so much more. There was a phrase written on the board in my therapist room that I went to two or three times a day in rehab. And it was written in blue dry erase marker. And it was the only thing that never got erased. And it, it said, I speak to be known. And man, I stared at those words every day going, that seems pretty, that uh, seems pretty straightforward. Like what, what's so unique? Why have those words been on this dry erase board so long you couldn't even wipe them off? And I thought and thought and thought about it. And what I realized was it's asking for you to be authentic. How do I show up in the world in a way that is true to who I am and what I want to be and in a way that facilitates others to do the same and in a way that I, I never create the chaos that surrounded me that like, in my past. I just think that when I stopped worrying about myself and started in, in terms of how I present or my ego and all that, when I started worrying about, I just want to be as good as I can and I want to help other people that are willing to be as good as they can, everything started working out. Like I told you a few minutes ago, we had a dozen names on an email list. We did now we have 200 and almost 60 limited partners in this syndicate. I, dude, I don't know where these people came from. Like, 
every day there's somebody applying to, to, to back the deals. And I'm like, <laughs> if old me had tried to do that, <laughs> it would have been a joke, total joke. Today, me, it, I'm just like, dude, great. I'm so glad you're along for the ride. Like, let me, A, reach out to you and see if there's anything I can do to help you personally. B, if you want to invest in our deals, great. I mean, awesome. You've had a hell of a journey, which you've been kind enough to, to share with us. And I always like to do a little thought experiment of giving you the opportunity of going back in time, sort of checking in with yourself somewhere along the, the journey, and maybe just giving yourself a little message and affirmation, something like that. Um, where would you go? What would you say? I would have found myself somewhere along the way and told myself to listen more, that my intellect isn't going to solve my problems. I put all of my faith along the way, college and all the stuff that happened since. I, I put all of my faith in my ability to score high on a test or my ability to go to a certain school or to get a certain job or to make a certain amount of money. And along the way, I use those benchmarks to say, well, I'm obviously doing it right. Like, you know, I'm making a lot of money or I've got this thing or that thing. And I, I, I would go back and tell myself to listen to more people who are different than you tell of their experience so that maybe I could have changed how I graded myself and maybe have avoided all this stuff that I went through. But at the same time, dude, I needed to go through that stuff. You'll hear this in AA a lot. Like, I am grateful for the addiction. I am grateful for the bipolar. Like, I wouldn't get to live this life without it. So, yeah, I'd go back and give myself a word of encouragement. I'd say, hey, listen more. Try to, try to embrace other ideas that are different than yours. But a little part of me would have... <laughs> I don't know, almost said, hurry up and get to rehab before you're 38 years old. Like, let's do this faster. Like, don't take so long to get help. <laughs> so as we come to wrap up here, anything else that you wanted to share or say to the audience here? Not really, man. I mean, the only message I would give is I would say that I wish everybody would walk into an AA meeting or a whatever. There's like 300 some odd 12-step meetings. Just go in there. Just go, or go somewhere where people walk into a room and are vulnerable with each other on a regular basis. It will fucking turn your life upside down in the most incredible way. Uh, get vulnerable. Find a place to do it. And you don't have to drink to go to AA. You don't have to go to AA. You can go. There's so many places where you can go get the opportunity to be vulnerable in a room with other human beings and there is science that shows that when we do that with each other, our nervous systems learn to regulate themselves. Life becomes more manageable. We become happier. And all these positive things start to just magically happen in our life. I would just, that's what I would tell people to do. Nice. That's a great message. Um, Stephen, I really appreciate uh, you. I appreciate you sharing your story. And thanks for making the time to come on the show today. Yeah, man, this is great. I enjoyed it. I hope this is helpful. I hope somebody listening to this needs to hear this message and hears it and gets something positive out of it. Thank you for doing this. I really am glad that you're doing this. The world needs 
dozens of more people telling these stories. So thank you for doing this. I got you, buddy. Bye now. Step programs, I think, get a mixed review in the press and on the internet. To some people, they're a religion pushing cult. To others, a pseudoscience approach to addiction. And to others, a life saving and essential community. There's some truth in all three, and I think your experience depends on where it is that you go for your 12 step community. Remember that they're all independently run. And I think that's what contributes to the wild variation in experience and what behavior is allowed. But let's not get implementation confused with the overall approach. Stephen followed the approach. He found a 12-step recovery community and really immersed himself in it. It's a humbling experience. But it turned him from the self-focused Wall Street finance guy doing drugs, sleeping with prostitutes and getting thrown out of country clubs to the man who could say, I don't think I add value to this project. We live in a world where that kind of honesty is rare. It's considered a novel concept. To some people, saying, I don't think I add value would even be considered weakness. Addicts who really embrace the 12-step programs, who really are able to let go of their ego and understand that it's more about how we choose to move in the world than it is what happens to us and around us. I think Stephen is a great example, someone who was able to give up his ego and the pretense that he had it all under control. He let go of himself. He let go of the pain. And that's a lesson I hope we can all learn from. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a rating or a review on iTunes or really wherever you get your podcasts. They make a huge difference in helping people find the podcast. If you want to interact with Silent Superheroes in other ways, you can sign up for our newsletter at silentsuperheroes.com or follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash silentsuperheroes. Take your mental health seriously. If you need to speak to someone, you can call 1-800-273-8255. Or text crisistextline.org at 741-741. Both provide 24-7 confidential counseling to people in the United States. Worldwide, visit iasp.info slash resources slash crisis underscore centers slash. To help others find the Silent Superheroes podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting service.